Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed. My guest today isn't someone you can sum up too quickly. She's spent over two decades building brands, businesses, and platforms. From iVillage, later sold to NBC, to AOL, and the direct-to-consumer company Brandless, which kicked off with a nearly $300 million investment. She's a seasoned entrepreneur, investor, speaker, board member, and mentor who's been firmly placed on big-name lists like the top 100 people transforming business, the top women in technology, and the most daring entrepreneurs. I talked to Tina Sharkey from her home in Mill Valley, California, on everything from how a childhood observing her mom's meetings helped shape her worldview, to handling the tougher moments of business, and the key things she teaches as a mentor. Tina Sharkey, it is such a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. It's so fun to be here. And I love the fact that you're in Tel Aviv. It's making me drool in thoughts of great falafel. So um, have some for me, please. I will. And I'm dreaming in the meantime of a road trip in California or just, you know, a walk in California hills. So the grass is definitely greener, I think, this year and dreaming about places far away that we all can't go to. Yes. Well, the invitation is open for when you come to California, you must come to Mill Valley um, and we'll do a hike on Mount Tamalpais and it'll be wonderful. Well, let me ask you about that. I mean, I imagine you're used to a pretty intense day to day and a sort of very productivity oriented lifestyle. How has this very, very strange year been for you so far? I mean, the good news, bad news. So the good news is I live in a really beautiful place. And I live in a house that is an 1890s cottage that's walking distance to the most bucolic little mountain town that makes it really wonderful. And many days I don't even use my car. And that's fantastic. Our COVID silver lining is when we could feel everything shutting down. My boys, one who's 18 and one who's 21, they were home, everything was shutting down. And they said, you know, we had said goodbye to our dog of 12 years a year before. And they said, well, maybe it's time to get another puppy. And I thought to myself, you know, with the boys leaving the house, do I really want to start with a puppy? But given that I thought we were all going to be home, it was a beautiful thing. So she is our COVID silver lining. The other thing is that having spent the last two plus decades operating, building, scaling companies, both in large corporate settings and in startups, I'm not doing that right now. And so I've taken more of a portfolio approach to this year and probably to next year. And so I'm doing a a lot of board work, a lot of advisory work. And actually right now I am writing and architecting a class that I'm going to be teaching at USC starting in January, which will then probably become a book um, and other things. So I'm using my time in very different ways. And that is the hardest thing to get used to because I'm used to having teams. I'm used to executing um, not just ideas and advice, but also executing businesses and plans. And right now I'm in, you know, advisory, board member, consultancy, teaching mode, which is quite different than what the last couple of decades have been. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing has been such an exercise in radically changing expectations and sort of discovering different parts of ourselves. And I think a lot of people probably have that feeling of, will I even remember what it's like to get back into the pace of normal work, so to speak, and, you know, office life and and all of that stuff? Yeah. And you know what? I don't think there is any going back, to be honest. I think that it is the next normal. And I feel that we've been time capsuled forward a decade or two into where we would have shifted anyways. 
And so this disaggregation of people, this disaggregation of, you know, cities and critical masses, they're going to find their vibrancy again. So I think that we will figure it out, but it's going to not look the way it looked. We will never be going back. We're just going to be doing a hybrid and a blend and a new model. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly sped up so many things, uh, whether on the personal level, the company level, or, or societal level. And it's going to take a while, I guess, to see the full-fledged impact of that for better or worse. I want to circle back with you to way, I mean, way before any of this was relevant to the beginning of your journey in some way in terms of growing up in your childhood. I know you were born in New York. Your parents worked in the garment industry. I think your mom was president of Perry Ellis America for a time. And I've heard you describe yourself as sort of having this front row seat to a really unique environment or education at home. And I wonder what that was like. And maybe what are some of the things you might have picked up from your parents that today you think, wow, that made a lasting impact? First of all, kudos to you for being such a great journalist, because you're only one of maybe two or three that have ever even asked me those questions. So those questions just make me smile ear to ear, because it brings me back to my mom, who's unfortunately no longer with us, but is with me every day in her lessons. Um, And I would say that a couple of things. One is, when I was in high school, um, my parents got divorced, and my mom and I moved into Manhattan. Uh, she had a big job, as you as you referenced, in the apparel industry, and she was running various companies, Perilous America, and Klein, other things. And so I used to take the subway after school up to my mom's office, and she used to say, look, go find an empty desk or an empty office and do your homework. And then you are welcome to sit in on any meeting as long as the person who's running the meeting is comfortable with it and you're only speak when spoken to. So I grew up really being around, being invited in, sometimes asked to model, um, often asked for my opinions inside of corporate and company life. And I got to see the workplace as a second family because that's how my mom treated all of her team. So I just thought that's how it was. So that's how I've always treated my teams. And also, you know, it's good to have a rookie on the bench. It's not always good to have people who have all of the experience that they bring because also they bring their blind spots and they bring their prejudices and they right you need a fresh perspective yeah they just bring their old stuff and sometimes fresh thinking or a fresh point of view that doesn't have all of that legacy muscle memory you know uh, sometimes you have to retrain it and so the other thing that was really interesting is that in my mom's office and pervasively throughout the apparel industry it was a you know, a very women dominated business. And in her leadership team, her head merchant, her head designer, her head of sales, they were all women. A lot of her salespeople were women, if not all. Um, A lot of her sewers and creators in the back where they garments, not the garments weren't made, but the samples and, you know, the design samples, not the actual line, because that was manufactured um, in factories. But they were all women. And so I saw all these women um, and I never said, oh my goodness, look, there's all these women here. I just assumed unconsciously, it didn't seem strange. So yeah, it didn't seem strange to you. What a rare experience, especially back then. Yeah. So when I got into the workforce and I realized that that's not how it always is, I was like, 
oh my gosh, feminism, like it's a thing. <laughs> and I need to be aware of that because I took it for granted, you know, because you see what you know. It's, so I had my own unconscious bias to thinking that that's just the way it was and that women had a seat at any table they were invited to because I was. And then when I was even younger, um, my parents were married and both of my parents worked in the uh, garment industry. I remember on Saturdays, my sisters and I would go into the office and we got to play some sort of a role where we felt like we were contributing. I only know now that like me coloring in the style sheets was not actually something they probably used, but I thought that that and my stapling and clipping uh, was a critical factor. I always wanted something to do, whatever that something was. And I remember, you know, we're Jewish. And I remember when my children were young, we used to always volunteer to be ushers. And they would stand, you know, at the Jewish holidays at the door, and they would make sure everybody had what they needed, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that that has had a major impact on them. And it had a major impact on me because you always felt like a sense of empowerment, personal empowerment, like you have a role to play, you can do something here. And you can help make this a better experience for whomever and whatever way in which you're applying it, whether it's a lemonade stand, whether it's filling out the tags, or whether it's contributing inside of a company. There's so many things that you can do. So how do you apply that to people on your own team? You know, I would always hire kids out of college and interns and all of that. And I would say to them, look, we're going to give you a job. And that job is going to be X, Y, or Z on whatever team you're working on, whether you're on the social media team, whether you're on the finance team, whether you're on the product team, whether you're on the merchandising team, you're going to have a job. But you also have transferable skills. You may be better at Photoshop. You may be better at, you know, PowerPoint. You may be better at whatever it is that you're doing in school, which is a tool that you just take for granted. And so make sure that the executives and teams that you are a part of, even though you may not be spending a ton of time with them, know that you have these extra skills. And then volunteer. Volunteer to sit and only speak when spoken to, but if there's an executive putting together their portion of a board deck, volunteer to say, look, is there any way that I can be helpful? Do you want me to help with the Photoshop? Do you want me to help with the slides? Things like that. And then even if you're sitting there quietly and you treat the experience with confidentiality, you're going to be learning so much about how to put a board deck together or in the case of a merchandising roadmap or how to put a sales pitch together just by having a seat at that table and being an extra set of hands with a skill that you're bringing that you didn't even realize you had because you take it for granted. Yeah, I think oftentimes we think of a particular, this is X job will give of me Y skill and it's very kind of cut and dry, but we don't always realize maybe how much we're picking up in certain environments that will really shape not only our skill set, but our understanding of what it is we want to do, what it is we're good at or not, what path we might eventually choose and I like that those examples of also even in childhood roles that could seem relatively insignificant at the time can have such a long lasting effect. So you had all of this very unique experience to get to be in those rooms at a young age. And then if we jump to university, degree in international relations at UPenn, a semester of the Sorbonne. And I have to say, I mean, this piqued my interest because I did the same thing. I, I did international relations at NYU, though and a semester at the Sorbonne. So it made me think of sort of my own path also and, and my own debate over what to study. Why did you choose that? I mean, at that point in your life when we're sort of asked to make some decisions about where we're headed, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do? 
Well, it's such a great question because it's the answer you'll be very surprised by. I actually wasn't that interested in international relations, but I went to the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Pennsylvania is just this unbelievable campus with so many remarkable institutions on it. So that's where the Wharton School of Business is. That's where the Annenberg School of Communications is. That is where they have an incredible graduate program for the arts, not to mention the College of Arts and Sciences, which is where I was enrolled and where I got my degree. And so it was like a candy store. Like there was just so much. And I, there was no way that I was looking to take a, a double or triple major where, you know, Wharton College, et cetera. It's also wanted to have some fun. And my best friend from high school went to Brown. And I remember she used to say to me, oh my gosh, it's so awesome. You can design your own major. There's no requirements. You can take whatever you want. And I thought, oh gosh, at Penn, like there's so many requirements that I'll never be able to try other things in other institutes on the campus. And so I went to my advisor and I said, you know, I haven't decided what I want to major in, but I do know what I want to study. And so she said, well, what's that? And I said, well... I love the Annenberg School of Communications. I think Wharton has some great entrepreneurial programs. I really want to study abroad and live in Paris and study French. I love the arts and um, I'm actually interested in sociology. A la carte studying. She said, wow, that's awesome. And she said, I think I have a major for you. Uh, I said, what's that? She said, international relations. I said, why is that? And she said, well, it's super multiple and flexible. And I think you'll be able to stuff all of that into that major. And so that was why I chose international relations, because it was a great container for my ability to sort of take a little bit of all the university had to offer and design it in a way that got me everything I wanted to do. That's great to to blend all your interests as much as possible, especially because that's such a time really just to pursue interests and to feel things out and such a unique time in life to do that. So fresh out of college, I think you are working with HDTV before HDTV was a thing, before anybody knew what that was. And lobbying Congress, is that right? How, how does this happen? So uh, that's a great question. And it happens... Um, I'll go back to my mom because it's related. You know, I grew up at her heels and um, I wanted to be just like her. And so I thought I wanted to be, you know, the CEO or president of a fashion company. I loved fashion and I loved apparel and that's what I knew. And so when I graduated university, my mom said, you know, I'll set you up on some informational interviews so that, you know, you can start to learn about the different roles and the different things that this is really what you want to do. Um, and you might want to go for your master's, but like you probably should get a little bit of work experience to see what you want. And one of the people that she set me up with was a man by the name of Tamio Taki. And he was a sort of a, a Japanese real uh, impresario. And he owned a lot of companies like Ann Klein and Donna Karen and other things. And my mom asked if he would give me 15 minutes. You have like an elevator pitch for a 21-year-old. Exactly. So I went to his office and the uh, secretary said that she'd show me into the office, uh, but he was running a little bit behind. And I said, no problem. So I'm sitting at his desk. I was staring at the wall behind his desk because piled up from the floor high was a series of I could see the spine, so I didn't know whether they were scripts or what they were exactly. Then I noticed in staring at that pile that they weren't scripts for uh, movies. They were business plans. 
And at the time, people would put the name of the business like on the spine. So now everything is a PDF or you have to log into it. But at the time, people used to send their business plans. And as I'm staring at the wall, I noticed that one of those things was a plan that I had worked on when I was at the University of Pennsylvania at the Wharton School. I took an entrepreneurial management class. And one of the um, projects, the big, you know, course project was to team up with some local entrepreneurs in Philadelphia and help them write their plan. And there was sitting in this man's office behind his desk, the plan that I wrote with these entrepreneurs in Philadelphia. So eventually he comes to his office and I say to him, do you know about all these different plans back here? What are you doing with that one? And he says, what do you mean? And so I sort of get up, I point to the plan I'm talking about. And he says, well, what do you know about that? And I said, I wrote that at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. And I described him just what I described to you. And I said, if you're thinking about investing in that company, I would really think twice about that because there are patent issues. He said, you know, you really should meet with my partner. Uh, we have at the time, he called it a merchant bank. It really was barely even called seed and angel capital but that's really what it was. And so I met with his partner the next day. I went over all of the insights around that and they hired me. They did invest in a, a video production studio that was in high definition television because Tomi Otaki was very friendly with Akita Morita, the family that ran Sony at the time. And uh, Sony was the labs where HDTV was being manufactured in Japan. And so we invested in this video company to bring HGTV into the States. And the key issue with getting HGTV scaled at the time was getting an electronic standard ratified by our government to be the standard that we used here. And so that became what we ended up using. And I joined the American Electronics Association HDTV Task Force. And that's how I ended up you know, lobbying Congress, getting involved in HGTV and all the rest. But I really went in that door for an interview on fashion. And I left being, you know, an advocate for all this other stuff. And that changed my career. I never went into fashion. I never looked back. And that really launched my interest in technology and applications and how to use technology in new and different ways. What an incredible confluence of factors and a reminder of how 15 minutes that you think can be one thing it just completely changes your your entire career path. And what an incredible first real work experience like that out of college. You mentioned your interest in powerful innovation that runs through your entire career. And that makes me think kind of naturally, especially in terms of being prescient and kind of looking forward at where things are going in tech and in culture of iVillage. This is mid-90s. You co-found this massive online space for women before it was sold to NBC Universal. I mean, what was that for you in terms of your kind of personal and professional, maybe self-discovery? You know, what's interesting about that, and it's as relevant today, this second, as we sit, you're in Tel Aviv and I'm here in Mill Valley, the insight around using a technology platform, which at the time was AOL, a private network that was very fast and speedy because all the tools were on the software and the network and eventually became the open web, that people wanted to find community and they wanted to find affinity to people who either shared their interests, their life stage or their moment. I used to call it, or I do call it a reason, a season, a lifetime. And so connecting people to their passions and other people who share them, connecting people to an affinity where they were having a moment, whether that was 
the birth of a child, which ultimately led me to leave baby center, or whether that was menopause, or whether that was parenting, or whether that was, you know, career, life, whatever, finding other people that can relate to where you are and using that as the basis for forming community and getting advice, giving advice and finding people with whom you have a shared experience became, you know, and has been the underpinnings of my career is building communities and businesses that leverage community to help scale that because ultimately those businesses have sold. So you mentioned just now also that part of that may be awakening for you in, in terms of that kind of community building and especially in this case, space for women was having a baby. I think you mentioned your two boys are 18 and 21. Is that right? Yes. So where were you at in your career when you had your first son? I, I read something you've said before that struck me when a baby is born, a mother is born, which is just so powerful and so so true, but we don't really think about it that way so much. I mean, what did that mean for you in your experience? Again, you are really a great journalist and a great researcher. So that's a whole nother conversation. Um, I know we could spend probably two hours on this. But. I Yeah. So look, I think that there's the sisterhood of motherhood is, is something very, very special because, you know, when a woman becomes a mom, it's like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. And it's not to say that everybody needs to be a mom and it's not to say that parenting is for everyone. But that transformation of being able to care for somebody else, that transformation of getting out of your own head, of getting out of your own needs, and really being of service to this helpless little child who, um, you know, if you're, if you're nursing them, um, your body is physically uh, transformed. You are the source of food as they get older. Just that feeling of having this new role in life that you never give up. And then learning how to calibrate that role so that you give them agency so that they have the ability to sort of function independently and on their own. But I think human beings are the only animals that have such a long period in time where the babies are cared for by their mothers. You know, when you look at a horse being born after birth, they just walk away. It takes a human baby, you know, nine months to a year. Yeah. I grew up in Colorado and we had deer in our backyard that every single summer would give birth. It's just funny you use that example. It's an image I've always had in mind. They give birth and then within a couple of minutes, you see one leg standing up after another and then that's it and they're off. And how radically different it is for us. Exactly. Well, I find that really encouraging and interesting. And I'll, I'll reveal a personal thing for the first time on these podcasts, which is that I'm pregnant with my first child. So I find that particularly pertinent <laughs> for me in the moment. Oh, yay. And I'm glad to hear that. Well, I hope that you're finding support, not just from your family and your friends, but also from uh, expecting mothers who are in a similar place in their journey because there's only so much you can tell the people in your life who are not experiencing every single ache, pain, and new feature function of your body. Um, but there are moms <laughs> or expecting moms who are, and they have infinite capacity to share all of that. And that was the beautiful sisterhood of motherhood that we built at Baby Center and scaled it around the world. Right. So was becoming a mother part of you wanting to take that on? So you you were chair and global president of, of Baby Center. This is like the world's biggest platform for new moms. Was that woven into your personal experience in some way? Or was that a very professional, natural next step? No, totally separate, very professional. I didn't start the company. It was a 
company that was started here in Silicon Valley, and then they got bought by a company which at the time was called eToys. This is in the height of the bubble. You know, they went public and then they went bankrupt when the bubble burst. And so Baby Center, which I think had only been in their portfolio for a short amount of time, kind of went into that downward spin cycle. And somebody at Johnson & Johnson in the baby group on the consumer side said, oh, look at that platform. And it's already all built called Baby Center for New and Expecting Moms. And they bought it. And then they had no idea what they bought because these were not digital leaders. These were people who were, you know, responsible for creating and marketing baby shampoo and baby powder. And so they hired me to help turn around the company and scale it. And by the time I left, we were in 22 countries, 14 languages on mobile and web platforms. And we were serving 30% of the online moms in the markets that we launched in, which was China, Brazil, I mean, you name it, all over the world. But in addition to that, eight out of 10 babies here in the US, uh, when I left, were baby center babies. What's so interesting about that job is that when I first was shown my office, the little sign outside my door said, chief mom. <laughs> and I said, with respect, you know, to the team that was there, I'm so excited to work with everybody. I'm so excited to learn more about the company and to figure out how I can help everybody continue to grow and scale this business. But the only place where that sign is relevant is in my house. Um, I am nobody's mother, at least that's here. I'm Jacob and Charlie are who I'm the mom for here. I'm the, you know, the leader and I'm here to help turn around and build and scale a remarkable business, not be anybody's mother. Uh, that people will have to deal with on their own. And so I wasn't attracted to it. Yes, I love the category and I was passionate about the subject matter and about supporting the global sisterhood of motherhood. But that was a job that was a, you know, repositioning the company as a media and commerce platform um, and then scaling it and then being a value added insight engine to all of the marketers that we worked with to help them really understand the hearts and minds of 21st century moms here in the US and around the world. That's a great anecdote in, in terms of making that distinction. I mean, here it's a very clear cut version of having to make that distinction. But I think that's something that probably a lot of women face in the workplace is sort of gray areas of behavior and what's your role and, and maybe doing things that aren't necessarily in the job description, but somehow fall to them, to women more than to men and being able to stand your ground and say, this is what I'm here to do, period. Yeah. And the way in which I did it, you know, treating my team like an extended family or a business team, nurturing their careers, all of that. Yes. But I was not their mom. Yeah. So I don't want to leave the impression that I was a, you know, cold, heartless leader, um, just the contrary. But I said, you know, these like cutesy titles to me get in the way of actually getting down to work, which is what we're here to do. Well, Tina, you've moved through so many high level, impactful roles from all kinds of things at AOL to Sherpa Capital. I mean, if I, we come through all of them, I'd keep you here a couple of hours. So if you zoom out a little bit, what do you think has guided you in making transitions and leaving something behind, starting something new? How do you know when it's time to move on, especially when you're in such big roles and I imagine so deeply connected because you're the one largely creating the thing? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say a couple of things. When I'm making a decision to take a role, whether that's a board role, an advisory role, an operating role, or starting something, I think to myself, what can I uniquely contribute to this? Can I be set up to be successful? What am I learning here? Because I never want to do anything where I'm just uh, giving. I feel like 
everything should be bimodal. So I want to be able to learn as much as I can teach and help and lead. And so I think being a great leader is also being a great learner and a great listener. When I know it's time to move on is when, A, I believe that the team, I've given them the the power to get this done on their own without me. And so that means there's somebody on my bench that is ready to actually take on that role. I always try and develop a bench so that people are never like, you know, just stuck in their own jobs, that they're always thinking about what's next and I'm helping them get there. Or I feel like there's nothing more I can contribute other than continuing to just make sure the ships run on time. But like my work is quote unquote done there. If I don't believe there's somebody on the bench, I try and identify and bring in and usually uh, train the next leader to take the reins and then they have to mold it in their image. But I try and at least help that onboarding. And then finally, if I feel like I'm done learning in that particular environment and that I don't have anything left to contribute, like it's all, like nothing's ever done. Of course, there's always more work to do, but my unique value add um, has played out its useful life. Or there's something calling me to do something that I feel like would be just the next great challenge. That's a great bigger picture take on it. And being in a place where you continue to learn no matter where you are in your career is so important as a reminder. And it's hard to do, I think, in in practice a lot of times because we get in a comfort zone and there's often risk involved in, in leaving a place where either not necessarily you're coasting, but you know where you're at versus starting fresh somewhere else. So I think maybe a lot of people will know you best from Brandless, this incredible, innovative concept, this company that's all about direct-to-consumer, making things accessible, low price point, without a bunch of harsh chemicals and so on. And I know you you founded this with Ido Leffler, your partner in this. I mean, there's so many things to talk about with this, but I wonder maybe, how do you even begin? Because with Brandless, we're not talking about one product or even one field. You're talking about creating accessible products across the board and controlling the entire supply chain. So how does one start such a thing? First and foremost, we did a lot of data and technical analysis, looking at all the products across the spectrum and saying, what are the household penetration rates of those products? So how many households have this, that, or the other by category, right? And then what are those consumption turns? So for example, snacks. Snacks have a 99% household penetration rate, probably 99.9. And the consumption turns are one time a week. People are like replenishing their snacks. And so if you want to build something where you are immediately reaching an audience and then having their repeat buying and their engagement go very high, we prioritized snacks as one of the things that we would do. Then we would go a level down from that and say, okay, what is happening in the snack market that, and we know we're committed to doing better for you, better for your family, better for the world at large. So that's where we had the organics, the gluten-free, the non-GMO, you know, healthy, but fun and uh, delicious snacks. And so we were able to create that roadmap. And there were other things like in our clean beauty collections, 
where those uh, household penetration rates might be lower and their consumption turns might be lower, but accessibility of clean beauty that was free of sulfates and phosphates and non-animal tested, et cetera, at affordable prices was something that we felt we could do and do a great, beautiful product that was exponentially more affordable than what was in the black boxes at you know, department stores, so to speak, because clean beauty at the time was priced so much higher than the market or that it needed to be priced. And so we would look at all these different factors on how we would analyze, you know, what products and build those relationships. You guys ended up stepping away, closing before selling in February. What was that experience like for you on a personal level, I guess, to, to step away after all that? Hard. Yeah, I imagine. There's so much I can say, but I think that, you know, it's very hard uh, to see something that you've created that was such a beautiful, first and foremost, a beautiful culture, an incredible team of people that I recruited and uh, that were really their brandless family and the culture that it attracted people who cared not only about the products that we were building and the services that we were offering, but very much cared about the movement that we were on to democratize access to goodness and really bought into that mission and brought into our vision of doing that. And so I'd say it was just very hard. And then the products, there was such just love for the products and deep love for the community that we existed to serve. And so stepping away from that was hard and painful. After all your experience in building companies, I mean, massive, massive companies and brands and communities, does an experience like that or others along the way make you more risk averse in any way? What's your personal take on quote unquote failure, which is often not really failure? I, I, I don't know if it's risk averse. You know, you think about what are the lessons learned and then how can I use those lessons in my toolkit to help others and to help myself? because I've seen so much at the front lines and I try and turn all of that into experience that you can't replicate, you know? So being able to advise others, being able to be on boards and in businesses where I've seen around those corners and I see where the potholes and pitfalls are and being able to help advise others not to make the same mistakes. I mean, I make mistakes every day. I just try not to make the same ones. And so it's helpful to have that in your toolkit because you've been down those roads before and you can, you know, maybe use your maps in different ways. Well, that's turning so-called failure or lessons learned into something really concrete and useful and positive to take forward. So that's a good lesson, I think, for everyone, no matter what kind of quote unquote mistake or failure, whatever it is, that it all helps us going forward. I know you're also a mentor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Is there something that stands out to you when you meet so many people and you advise people, whether it's frankly on the advisory board of you know PBS or, or students, is there a key thing that you find holds people back or that maybe people share with you that you found? One thing I really do is I try and use my superpowers, you know, to really help almost invisibly empower people, whether it's individuals or teams, to manifest the, the possible, which they might think is impossible, or to see, as I often, I don't know if you're a Harry Potter reader, but 
to see what I call the room of requirements. And that is as a Harry Potter reference for all your listeners who are not Harry Potter fans, the room of requirement only presents itself, the door and everything behind it when you really need it. And so I think it's really important to think about what is it that you really need at this moment for the business, for your team, for yourself, and then how do you manifest that? But if you can't think about it in that way of like, what is the next thing we need? How do you kind of create the advance? How do you find a belief in yourself and give yourself permission to go there? Oftentimes people don't give themselves permission to go somewhere. And I would say that you're a great example of that, of somebody who does do that because, you know, you created this podcast, you went onto LinkedIn, you reached out to people that you wanted to sit down and have a conversation with some of whom probably responded, some of whom probably didn't, but you're, here we are, you're in Tel Aviv, I'm in California, we're having this conversation and you made that happen. Of course, I'm playing a role as well because I showed up, but um, I wouldn't have showed up if you hadn't asked me or if you hadn't shared with me your vision and your background. And so it's manifesting the possible, which for some people feels impossible. Do you find that that's a learned skill in a way? Because I think so many of us also feel that our own fears and insecurities are our own unique problem, and it's not necessarily something changeable. It's not so much that it's a learned skill. I think it's more about confidence and um, being confident that you don't need to always have the right answer, but it's okay to ask the question. And so being confident, I think that's one of my great skills is I'm never afraid to be a student. I always, I ask a lot of questions and that's because I show up as a card holding member of the team. And that means that I can play multiple positions, but I also really want to learn from that team. And I really want to hear what they have to say. And then I want to share what I have to say and mold the clay together and drop my ideas out there, not as directive but as potentially um, provocative to have them think differently about the problems they're trying to solve or the things they're trying to create and trying to almost give them belief in themselves. Belief in you starts with you. And so if you don't believe in you, like nobody else is going to believe in you. So I think that is a universality of like getting people to give themselves permission to do, be, say, go, reach, for anything they want. And you're not going to get it all the time. But if you don't believe it, why would somebody else believe in you? That's not somebody else's job. That's your job. That's a great piece of advice and so relevant to everyone, no matter what field they're in. Let me just ask you before I, I let you get back to your still busy, very busy COVID life. I have two more bigger picture things that interest me. One is the changing definition of success, because I think a lot of times we all start out with one perception, whether it's like a very clear, drawn out thing or something that's more subconscious of what success is or what it would look like or what we have to attain. And that tends to change after a certain number of years and experiences. Has your perception of what success means for you changed over the years at all? I don't know that it's changed as much as it's like cemented. And, you know, I find success in maintaining my health and maintaining my communities in supporting others and unlocking joy for people, uh, for businesses, for experiences, for entrepreneurs. Success is helping others scale. I don't define success as my own individual success. I really think about it as how can I use my superpowers for teams, you know, to help those teams or individuals unlock the possible. And so I don't define success on my own basis because that's just not how I think. I'm very others-minded. 
but that doesn't mean I don't play a major role in that. And so I take great pride in watching others achieve great things that I have helped in a catalyst for, either by provoking ideas, planting seeds, helping with you know my community or my creativity, and helping them architect and design um, and manifest the possible, which sometimes feels impossible. And so I define my success by the success of the people around me. And how can I help them achieve their visions, goals, and dreams? And for that, like even for my children, their success is, you know, seeing one go off to college and one start to pursue his passions in creating a personality in the sports media space. Like if he believes in himself and he can go off and do that, I feel great about that. Not because I had anything to do with it, but I feel as his mom, I've put all of my values and everything that I have to give them is inside of them. And so they're going to use that over time and hopefully they'll pass it on to their children. But that's really the embedded behavior. We're not here to teach our children. We're here to teach our children's children. And so I always think about that as a way to pass on, you know, wisdom is like, what are you embedding? in your family, in your teams, and in the places where you contribute, where you're setting them up to be able to scale and execute. Finally, this might be kind of an extension of that is if you were to sit down today for coffee with your 20 year old or your pre HDTV self, let's say, what might you tell her? What might I tell her? I might say that a belief in yourself starts with yourself. And um, it's okay to just be you. Don't have to do anything. You just have to be. And I think that it's taken me, it's almost like a Zen. What does that even mean? But it's, it's a very Zen thought of like, how do you just sit with yourself? And that's enough. And then you can show up in lots of different ways. But you just have to learn how to sit with yourself. And you don't have to do anything in order to be. You can just be. Well, that's clearly a running thread that has brought you a lot of fulfillment and success over the years and, and advice that everybody can use really bringing it down to basics. Tina Sharkey, thank you so much for taking the time to, to travel back in time with me and share some of the many, many, many lessons you've learned along the way. It's my pleasure. And I have a request, which won't be on the podcast, but and we set up another time just to talk because I just so loved meeting you. And I hope it's not the end. Um, I hope it's the beginning. Uh, of a beautiful friendship because you really inspire me. I would love that. Well, the feeling is mutual to say the least. Thank you. Uh, toda and uh, shalom, shalom. Ciao, ciao. Thanks so much, Tina. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts. Tell me about any questions you want answered or women you'd like to hear from on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And here's a peek at next week's episode. Alexandra Waldman has been a fashion editor in Tokyo, a writer in Paris, and a financial marketer in Moscow. But it was in 2015 in New York that her life changed when she and her partner started Universal Standard, their brand of clothing size double zero to 40 has since made Fast Company's list of most innovative companies and drawn big name investors like Gwyneth Paltrow. She has a very candid and often funny take on what it took to get there.
we did not know anything. We're meeting with these heads of factories who think that we're these American manufacturers. They're saying things like, you know, what are your grading rules? And Paulina is desperately looking up the word grading on her Google. And so we finally had to just come clean and we're sitting across these, you know, very kind of uh, distinguished men who have been doing this for their entire careers. And we're like, what is this grading thing you're talking about? I'm Nareep Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.